Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer Radio Show, brought to you by Calm Box Feeds. My name is Andy Schneider, but most know me as the Chicken Whisperer, author of the Chicken Whisperer's Guide to Keeping Chickens, national spokesperson for the USDA Biosecurity for Birds program, and editor-in-chief of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Each week, I welcome experts in their field to share their knowledge about different topics, including backyard poultry, show poultry, heritage poultry, gardening, cooking, and, of course, living a self-sufficient lifestyle. Be sure to visit us online at chickenwhisperer.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, become a fan on Facebook, and subscribe to the totally free digital edition of Chicken Whisperer magazine. Once again, I would like to thank all of you for tuning in today to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. At Kalmbach Feeds, our layer pellets and crumbles are all natural, antibiotic-free, with no animal byproducts. Formulated just for laying hens, our feed is fortified with essential amino acids and calcium to ensure maximum production of nutritious, tasty, strong-shelled eggs. From our family to yours, feed your hens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome, goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Find a dealer at KalmbachFeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H, Feeds.com. Or order your layer pellets and crumples today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of The Chicken Whisperer. All righty, we have a great show uh, lined up for you today. We have uh, poultry veterinarian, Dr. Maurice Pateski, and uh, he's going to be here. I've got a great topic, and I've seen this over the years, and it reminded me again. I saw it again a couple of weeks ago, and I thought this is a, a great topic um, that we all really kind of need to know about, and, and I see it posted out there quite frequently. Um, when is a sneeze just a sneeze? And when it's not, and uh, when it's not, play with different symptoms, we may not know what to look for when we just see our uh, backyard flock uh, sneeze, or maybe one sneeze. When uh, Someone had posted earlier on my Facebook page, I've had this one hen for two years, and she's just a sneezer. She's just been for two years, and nothing, no illnesses, no, nothing, that never gets worse than that. All my other chickens don't sneeze, they're just fine, but I guess she's got some allergies. 
So uh, it, it happens out there, and I see it a lot. We have people ask about it uh, when we're on the road, when we're doing our tour. Um, I'm not, I have a chicken that started sneezing yesterday. Do I need to isolate it? Do I need to automatically just start antibiotics on it? And a lot of people out there will say that. Oh, you have a sneezer? Uh, just sneeze? Just just the first sneeze. My, my plan is to isolate them and start them on antibiotics. And uh, <laughs> maybe that's why we've got this FDA directive coming in in January where you're no longer going to be able to buy these antibiotics, water-soluble ones, just uh, over the counter walking to the store and, and going home with a boatload of it, just using it anytime you want to. So, um, but that's going to be a great show. Really, really looking forward to it today. And uh, we'll bring him on, uh, Dr. Biscay, uh, on just a minute. Uh, I want to do a little bit of host chat, and then I get to go to my first break before we bring him on. Just two commercial breaks during the whole show. Less than TV, less than FM, AM radio. So, gotta love it. Um, uh, it's that time of year again. Uh, I saw something uh, in the news about a chicken poop fire. Uh, yes, here we go. Uh, I need a big image of, I guess, a dead horse with me beating it with a big stick, beating the dead horse. Uh, all of our lo- longtime listeners and fans uh, know about this because <laughs> we've beaten that dead horse a thousand times. But um, we're going to start again this year. And, and, and some people get frustrated. Ah, oh, here he goes again with the poop fires. Yep, it's that time of year again, folks. Chicken poop fires. And I, I just had seen one on a, on a uh, uh, Google News uh, email that I got them on our Facebook page. So if you don't like it, well, then too bad. But because um, again, the message is every year, every month, every, there's always new folks that um, uh, are getting into. Uh, backyard poultry, and in fact, just yesterday on the Bay Area uh, Backyard Poultry Facebook page, uh, which is a group, um, they um, uh, had somebody ask, say, when is it going to get cold enough for me to put a heat lamp in the coop? And then a lot of uh, experienced folks uh, came on and and explained the, the uh, everything that needs to be done, meaning uh, it's never going to get cold enough here in lower Alabama <laughs> to um, require a um, um, heat lamp. So that's one of the things that, um, that that we need to talk about. So I just wanted to go down and kind of go through this very quickly. Um, there, there's a big difference in maintaining egg production by adding some light uh, and then um, heating the coop for heat is a big, big, big difference there. Some people t- sometimes get it mixed up. Some people say, I don't use a heat lamp. All they need is a little, you know, 25-watt bulb to maintain egg laying. And so sometimes the two topics get kind of flooded together. So um, in that one, in the uh, poultry group about lower Alabama, it was strictly um, when is it going to get cold enough to add a heat lamp to the coop. And my response has been my response for uh, a decade or longer, uh, which is, uh, chickens have been domesticated for about 8,000 years. Um, and folks, we've only had um, um, electricity in America for about the last 100 years. So chickens have been doing just fine without heaters in their coops for the past 7,900 years. I know there's always an exception to the rule. We have people that call in on the show. We have people that post on our page. I live in Alaska. Uh, I live in Maine. I live in Canada. We have backyard chickens. We never heat our coops at all. Um, people in Wisconsin, you know, the new new keepers, hey, it's it's going to get awfully cold here this week. We have a cold front coming through. Um, 
uh, when, what kind of heaters do you use for your coop? And, you know, it's like, oh, and you say something, oh, well, we live in Wisconsin, it gets cold. Well, you know, you may want to try to find somebody, somebody's family member that raised chickens before there was electricity. You know, they didn't just start raising chickens and having backyard chickens in Wisconsin uh, when we got electricity in Wisconsin. So, so they've been raising chickens in Wisconsin long before there was electricity, and the chickens obviously did just fine. So, so there's an issue there. I'm not saying we have to ignore our birds in the wintertime. Not, not at all. We talk about appropriate poops. We talk about uh, good ventilation, but no drafts. Um, we talk about different things to try to prevent um, frostbite and combs and wattles and feet based on the size of the roost. And, and, and uh, I don't really like the word insulation when it comes to coop, but good bedding, uh, maybe some hay bales on the, on the north side where the winds kind of are, are, are come through and things like that. But the problem is these horrible, dangerous heat lamps that people use. And why are they using them? Because they're $12 and everybody carries them. Um, so no matter what science we, we present, no matter how many fires I post uh, about poops uh, on Facebook, no, no matter what, um, there will always be a few that are going to heat their coops regardless. And, and I, I sum it up like this, and I use this in all of my workshops, you with somebody that comes up to you and says, but Andy, I'll sleep better at night knowing my girls are toasty and warm in their coop. You can't argue with that mentality. If you want to humanize your chickens, that's fine. But ditch the dangerous heat lamps. Okay, do please, I'm asking you, please do not use them. If you're going to, regardless of what reason, heat your coop, use a safer heater. And we're not even talking about maybe heating the coop, but just providing some heat directly onto the birds. For example, a perfect one is the sweeter heater. Go check them out, see what they're all about. Sweet as in candy. Sweeter, S-W-E-E-T-E-R, heater.com, sweeterheater.com. Check them out. They come in different sizes. You hang them above the roost or on the wall behind the roost so the heat is, is radiant right near the birds. So you're not heating the coop at all. You're not trying to get the coop to a particular temperature. You're just trying to take the edge off for the birds if you choose to do that. Because I know we're not going to talk everybody out of you know heating their coop because you're going to do it, regardless of what the science and facts and, and, and bio, you know does show. So, uh, But at least we can try to encourage you to not use these $12 heat lamps. They're going to burn your coop down, kill all your birds. The fire will spread to your house, burn your house down, burn the neighbor's house down, and they'll say, oh, yes, it happens every single year. Okay, we report on this. Uh, $60,000 in damage because the coop was against the house and it burned the house down or burned the garage down and two cars were in the garage and they're destroyed. Um, yes, the last couple of three years it's happened uh, where the fire from the coop from the dangerous heat lamp spread to the neighbor's house and now the neighbor's house is on fire because you were using a heat lamp, number one, and, and a coop. You know, there's an exception to every rule. We understand that. Um, uh but don't mistake the, oh, I need to add light to maintain egg production, 16 hours of light, with heat lamps, with heating the coop due to comfort. So um, just keep that in mind. Uh, we've talked about it. We've had a lot of experts on and talking about it. But it is the season. I've started to see um, more uh, story, people asking about it now, as they always do around this time of year, and now just a coop fire that we saw on uh, the news portion of Google Alerts uh, for a chicken coop fire. So we'll start posting those, and just again, to every year with the newbies, getting our point across and educating them 
based on that. Some people still may want to eat the coop, and that's fine. Um, and, and even, you know, the people, oh, what about uh, the, the um, bantams? What about my silkies? What about my uh, sarwamas? You know, the smaller, more more delicate. Um, you know, it, it's your call. But I know a lot of people, a lot of people that show their birds, a lot of breeders, silkies, sarwamas, they don't use heat. Uh, and they live in even very, very, very cold climates. I've had silkies. I've had sarwamas. I've had a lone bantam that wouldn't stay in the coop or the run. Uh, she She didn't like anybody. Nobody liked her. And she just had free range, basically, of the uh, the back 40. Uh, and she did, did fine, just trying to find by herself. Nobody to cuddle with, no roost, just wherever she could find out in the backyard. Uh, and she's through the two single digits, low single digit numbers. Uh, she's been fine by herself on a, in a tree, uh, somewhere uh, on a, uh, under a little wagon that held potted plants to, you know, wherever. She, she did just fine. So, um I wanted to stress that right now just because it's the season. I'm starting to see more posts about that. Um, so uh, please uh, do your research. And if you choose to heat your coop, please ditch the dangerous heat lamps. Ditch them. Ditch them, ditch them, ditch them. And uh, you'll see that as the few next few months go on. I post about all these fires that are going to happen um, uh, all across America due to people who are wanting to kill them with kindness. Okay, great show lined up today. We're going to go to first commercial break. When we come back, we will welcome poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Petesky. We're talking all about when a sneeze is just a sneeze and when it's not. So it's going to be a great topic. Uh, stay with us. Uh, get that pen and paper out because you're probably going to want to take notes. We'll be back right after this short break. When you need an incubator, think Brincy, the incubation specialists. Brincy has been a world-leading manufacturer of quality incubators for almost 40 years. They manufacture incubators that hold anywhere from 7 to 380 eggs with high-quality electronic and digital controls, including precise humidity controls and programmable egg turning, all at surprisingly affordable prices. Enter the coupon code WHISPER at checkout and receive 10% off your entire order. Order your new incubator today at Brincy.com. That's B-R-I-N-S-E-A.com. Cackle Hatchery is a third-generation, family-owned and operated hatchery. They offer over 193 varieties of poultry shipped directly from their facility in Missouri. It's their mission to enhance your life by providing you with quality poultry for showing, meat, enjoyment, eggs, and pets. They specialize in hatching purebred poultry and shipping day-old chicks right to your local post office since 1936. 4-H and FFA Youth Poultry Clubs get a 10% discount. Check out their website, CackleHatchery.com, for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at Hensaver.com. That's Hensaver.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? 
In most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Tasty Grubs by Tasty Worms Nutrition are the original dried black soldier fly larva made right here in the USA. Tasty Grubs are high in protein and calcium, vital nutrients for laying hens. Customers have reported an increase in shell quality, egg taste, and a reduction in molting time. For a limited time, get a bag of Tasty Grubs 100% free. Simply enter tastyworms.com forward slash whisper into your web browser and add one to your cart today. Save 10% on all other products such as dried mealworms by entering the coupon code whisper at checkout. That's tastyworms.com forward slash whisper. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. Uh, brought to you by Combot Feeds. All right, it's time to go over to the phone lines and bring on our guest today, poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski. And a great topic today, we're talking about when a sneeze is just a sneeze and when it's not. Uh, Doc, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me again, Andy. I appreciate yeah. it. Sounding loud and clear, which is great. Great connection. And uh, let's get started. It's, it's 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 very common to have this question. I get it a lot when I'm on the road touring. Uh, I just noticed it a couple of weeks ago when, when I called you and mentioned, hey, here's a great topic we need to discuss. And you see it online a lot, you know. And you get so many different responses from people from what I personally feel may be the extreme of, oh, one, one sneeze the first time, isolate it, antibiotics. The whole, the whole realm, and then, you know, watch it, see if there are any other symptoms to maybe isolate it and watch it to see, and then, you know, are there any other sneezing, what are some other symptoms, and that type of thing. So, hey, w- w- this is a great opportunity to ask a poultry veterinarian, you know, when, when we see that, what are the things to look for, what, what steps should we take, and really what a great title, when is a sneeze just a sneeze, and when is it not? Yeah, well, um, thanks again, Andy. And I think you set it up really perfectly um, a few minutes ago when you when you kind of said it. You, you kind of get these comments that kind of run the whole gamut as far as, you know, immediately treat it with antibiotics or, um, you know, you kind of get the other extreme where you kind of just kind of the wait and see extreme. Um, and uh, I kind of fall, you know, I, I kind of have a more kind of measured approach just based upon what the flock is in general. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, as someone who works with a lot of commercial flocks um, and, and kind of isn't trained in that, in that manner, um, commercial poultry veterinarians will be a little more aggressive in trying to diagnose a disease. So if you're walking into, let's say, a house with 10,000 birds in that house 
And the first thing the poultry veterinarian will do typically, um, and this is something that we can all do, is you'll walk in there and you'll just listen. Um, and you'll try to listen for gurgling and sniffing um, and sneezing. And when you do kind of start hearing those noises, most poultry veterinarians um, in a house of 10,000 birds will be more aggressive in the sense that some of those birds, they'll euthanize and they'll do a necropsy, which is just a fancy way of uh, saying an animal autopsy, and they'll send those birds also to a diagnostic lab um, in an attempt to see what's, what's actually going on here. Are we at the beginning of something? Um, and, and the reason that they'll be aggressive in that sense is because, as you guys probably understand, we're dealing with a house of 10,000 birds, and if it is something that we can treat or, um, um, or something that we need to be aggressive about so it doesn't affect the other 10 houses that are on that same property, um, we want to know that sooner or later. Now, poultry medicine in a commercial sense, you can, you can be, um, you know, and we've talked about this, and I'll talk about it again in a few minutes when you mention the kind of the uh, it's that time of year again, uh, as far as talking about the uh, the, the the accidents with the, and the fires, I feel like it's it's kind of that that every single month I get to this point where we at some point, no matter what we're talking about, we kind of talk a little about biosecurity. And the reality is, for commercial producers and for backyard producers, that is always going to be our best option to be preventative, um, because the reality is most diseases um, in poultry medicine we can't treat effectively in the sense that, sure, the birds might get better, but they can still be uh, carriers of those diseases later on. Um, and in backyard birds where we have mixed-age flocks, that can be a real significant issue. So when you, when you think about those two approaches that we, we talked about you know, earlier, like, okay, just treat them with antibiotics or you know, kind of wait and see, with the commercial flocks, I, I'm much more aggressive and most commercial poultry veterinarians are much more aggressive as far as diagnosing the disease. Um, in backyard flocks, we're typically not that aggressive, in part because we just don't have all the resources that um, the commercial flocks do. Um, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, that's their every single day job. That's their business, and they have to be um, good at that um, in order to uh, raise healthy birds um, that, are, um, that can be consumed by humans and things like that. Um, so my point is, is that when it comes to backyard flocks and diseases, I take a more measured view. I'm not always like, okay, let's sacrifice those birds, send them to a diagnostic lab and see what's going on. Um, so sometimes when you get that sniffle, if it was 10,000 birds or 1,000 birds that are sniffling, absolutely I'm going to send those birds to a diagnostic lab. If I'm in a backyard flock of five and the same proportion are sniffling, one or two of them are sniffling, I might take a more wait-and-see approach, um, in part because we know a lot of the diseases that backyard birds are carriers of don't always cause a, a significant amount of mortality, but they do cause morbidity. So you'll get birds that are sick for a handful of days, maybe a drop in egg production, but then they'll kind of get better and you'll kind of move, they'll move on with their life. Well, in commercial production, that's a significant issue. If you, if you had a big drop in production for a week or two out of 10,000 birds, that would affect you, and that would affect you, know, you in obvious ways. In backyard birds, maybe not such a big issue. So if you're in, it, it, a lot of it depends on, on what your interest level is. Do you use these birds just for um, you know, kind of a, a source of food? 
but also as just kind of a, the equivalent of a, of a family pet in a certain way, as a way to, to raise birds um, with children or with other people around. You just enjoy that practice of it. So I, I think those are all things to kind of consider a little um, when you're thinking about how aggressive or not aggressive to be. Now, when you do have mortality in your flock, that's when um, you've, uh, you've, you've crossed my threshold and you need to submit those birds, unless you can prove that it's from a predator. Um, any type of mortality in your flock um, that is followed up by kind of the clinical signs that we're going to talk about in a little, you probably want to err on the side of caution in that situation um, because you want to know what killed that bird or those birds in order to protect the rest of your flock, and not just your flock, your neighbor's flock. So as we'll talk about in a little, we're going to really focus on those sniffling respiratory-like diseases. Well, there's a lot of research out there that says those diseases um, not only can affect your flock, but they can be a reservoir for disease transmission for kilometers outside of your own flock. So in my mind, one of the things that I talk to poultry owners about is, is kind of that personal responsibility um, kind of issue, where if your flock has a lot of diseases and you don't practice good biosecurity, or even if you do practice good biosecurity, there's no such thing as perfect biosecurity. And the reality is, is that if you do have diseases on your, on your premise, on your, on your farm, um, those diseases are not just always limited to your farm. Um, they can spread through all different types of routes, even if you are um, outstanding at biosecurity, which some people are really good at it, and it's kind, of one, it's kind of one of those kind of ironic things of life. Very often the people that are the best at it, for some reason those are the ones that seem like they have the, 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 the significant problems. And then you'll go on to some commercial farms and non-commercial farms are doing everything wrong and uh, it doesn't seem like there's too much going on there. The birds have kind of figured out how to be a little more self-sufficient and uh, just one of those realities and kind of one of those ironies of life there. But before we kind of talk about these sniffles and coughs and things like that, I did want to talk a little about just the different modes of transmission that diseases okay. can spread uh, from bird to bird because um, respiratory diseases can be spread several different ways. And if we don't really understand how they're spread, um, I think we're going to have, um, we're going to get lost in the weeds by talking about, you know, is it really just a sniffle or not? And I really want to talk about a couple of diseases that are, I think, interesting because they kind of run the gamut of, eh, sure they have this, you know, ORT bacteria, but it's a mild strain and it doesn't seem to be causing any mortality, i.e. death, and it causes a little morbidity. So, you know, why would I, you know, be so aggressive about treating a disease where, where, where that's actually happening? Um, versus, you know, we're dealing with a much more significant disease like infectious laryngeotracheitis. So that's where, you know, when you, when you, when you want to know if that sniffle is that sniffle, you know, one of the big things that you really want to try to, to, to do at some level, you need to know what you're dealing with. And, and that, that can be obviously um, challenging in, 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 in poultry. And you have to work with a diagnostic lab. I have seen it and I've heard it where people have said, if your bird is sick and it has a sniffle, just give it apple cider vinegar or send me a photograph of it and I'll tell you what's wrong. And those are, are not appropriate answers and for several reasons because to diagnose a disease, if it's bacterial, you have to isolate uh, or culture the bacteria. So you can't do that without getting a sample from the trachea, for example, a swab of that, and then isolating a bacteria. Uh, similar diagnostic techniques 
um, are, 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 are used for virus isolation. So the idea that uh, A, apple cider vinegar is this uh, panacea that will uh, cure all these infections, or B, um, that you can send a photograph to somebody and that that person from the photograph will tell you what's wrong with the bird um, is it, it, usually just too good to be true. And I think we talked about that a couple weeks ago, but um, it's one of those things now I've kind of taken upon my shoulders to because I've, I've seen this happen more often than I, uh, or I've heard this more now more often than I, than I realize. So just very briefly, um, there's a few modes of transmission. I think we probably already know some of them, but some of them are, are maybe novel to people. Um, so the, the, the first one I want to just mention is transovarial, and that's just a fancy way of saying the disease moves from the hen to the progeny. So um, if you are raising chicks um, and um, your, the hen has a disease like mycoplasma, and mycoplasma is a respiratory, one of the mycoplasma species, mycoplasma galseptica, or MG, um, has a kind of respiratory um, pathology to it as far as the clinical signs that you're going to see. So that mycoplasma can get gets transmitted from the hen to the, to the chick. So that chick's not even born yet, and it already has that mycoplasma bacteria. So that's why with some diseases, we really need to understand, does it spread from the hen to the progeny? Because if we really wanted to eliminate that disease, unfortunately, we would have to depopulate um, the, the, the breeding flock or at the minimum treat that breeding flock in order to make sure that the progeny are um, unaffected or do not have um, the disease. The next one I want to do is transmission to the eggshell. So we talked about transmission from the hen to the progeny. So now we have an egg that is laid, um, and it is uh, incubating. And let's say there's some poop there, and in that poop there's salmonella or something like that. We all know that the egg is porous and that salmonella can move from the outside to the inside and now affect that um, developing embryo. And that's one of those reasons we always talk about biosecurity and good husbandry practices because in the incubator, we want um, a, a clean uh, environment uh, where we don't have lots of, of fungi like aspergillosis, which is a, a fungi we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, but we want to keep um, that egg nice and clean so nothing moves from the outside to the inside to affect the developing embryo. Um, and then a couple more, there's what we call direct and indirect transmission. So direct transmission is just a fancy way of saying contact between a sick bird and a non-sick bird. Um, so if you have your flock and has a play date with another flock, um, whether it's supervised or, or sanctioned or unsanctioned, um, you know, that's one way diseases can transfer. So we all have um, neighbors, and there's neighbors that always don't do all the things that we want them to do, including having these kind of unsanctioned play dates with chickens, um, where they just kind of jump the fence and, and start mingling, commingling with our birds. It's cute and, you know, kind of fun in that sense, but um, there's also the potential for, for transmission of diseases. And that, the, the, again, mycoplasma is one of the more common ones that you'll see in these kind of backyardy and small commercial farms. Um, and what I mean by small commercial farms, I'm kind of implying that um, birds that are raised uh, outdoors for commercial purposes, but... Um, um, don't have um, as much biosecurity as some of these um, it, it, it indoor raised birds. And there's advantages and disadvantages to everything. And one of the disadvantages of these kind of free-ranging pastured type um, scenarios is that there's 
potentially more interface and more interaction with uh, wild birds and other neighboring um, domestic poultry, for example. Um, so that's one thing for direct transmission. And indirect transmission is one of the things that um, if you have uh, shoes and equipment that has um, mycoplasma or pastorella or infectious laryngeotracheitis or any disease on it from one flock and you want to borrow those, the, that shovel or um, some of that equipment from one neighbor that has that uh, on it and then you took it to your house and brought it and exposed it to your flock, then that would um, transmit the disease that way. And then one of the more interesting ones is dissemination in the wind. So I kind of um, mentioned that a little earlier. So um, one of the kind of things that we learned with the avian influenza outbreak a couple years ago, the high path avian influenza outbreak, is that wind seemed to be one of the routes of transmission um, that avian influenza spread from farm to farm to farm in the Midwest. Um, and we didn't know that was is likely or as significant a, a component of how the virus was spreading in the Midwest until um, we, we, we looked at some of the epidemiology of, of how we think uh, of how disease was moving, and we realized that that was probably more significant than we, um, than we knew. Just from a practical perspective, infectious laryngeotracheitis, there's been some papers that have suggested it can blow in the wind and spread um, up to about five kilometers or so. So if your flock has ILT, um, it, it is uh, the surrounding flocks could potentially be exposed to um, that ILT in that same manner. And then finally, the last thing I want to mention, the last two I wanted to mention is feed. Um, so if we don't keep our feed nice and secure, um, rodents can get in there, birds can get in there, um, they eat and they poop, um, and um, they can transmit disease now when our birds are eating that contaminated feed. And finally, uh, biological vectors. Um, the idea that rodents and insects and waterfowl and all the different wildlife that we have uh, surrounding our, our property during that kind of interface between um, these urban uh, environments that we lim live in or semi-urban environments that we live in and the wildlife that surrounds us, um, that wildlife, they, they want to get into our coops because um, they see food and water in there. So we need to be aware of, of all these modes of transmission because if we're going to talk about, you know, is a sneeze really just a sneeze, um, we want to prevent that sneeze uh, as best we can. Uh, sometimes a sneeze is, I, I agree with you, just a sneeze. And I think when we talk about, uh, especially in backyard flocks, I think we just need to be a little more measured about how what we're going to do in a backyard flock than what we would do potentially in a commercial flock. And I think that's where a lot of people like myself really struggle because in a commercial situation, it's, it's a much more black and white answer what you'll do. Uh, if you walk into a house and you hear those sniffles, uh, and things like that, you are definitely going to uh, euthanize a handful of birds and send them to a diagnostic lab. Um, because why wouldn't you? You want to protect the rest of that flock. You've got a good relationship with that diagnostic lab. Um, some diseases you can vaccinate in the face of an outbreak, so you want to do this sooner than later. With backyard flocks, it's a much more difficult decision to make, in part because you have so many fewer birds and you've got a personal relationship with these birds. Um, but like I said, I think if, if you do have mortality, if you do have death, um, I, I think the responsibility is to submit those birds. There is no reason to not submit those birds, especially in that situation, because you want to protect the rest of your flock. 
Where it gets difficult is when you're kind of the in-between scenario, like, oh, my, my flock, the birds kind of have a sniffle, and they don't seem like they're eating as much. What do I do? And that can be a, a much more challenging kind of mm-hmm. almost philosophical answer where we have to think about, you know, are we one of those people that we, we take our kids to the doctor the first time they get that sniffle, or do we kind of mm-hmm. try to wait it out a little um, and see what happens? I do advocate for people to use um, sick pens. Um, most people don't have them, but in a perfect world, if you do hear that sniffle, um, you would put those sick birds in a sick pen um, and isolate them from the rest of your flock. The challenge is when do you bring those birds back into your regular population? So let's say they were exposed to mycoplasma and they've got kind of um, conjunctivitis, i.e. the the membrane on the outside of the eye or on the on the on the on the surface of the eye is inflamed and red and there's discharge and you're hearing kind of sniffling. Okay, sure, put them in that in that sick pen and hopefully the rest hopefully not all your birds go to that sick pen because that would kind of um, not be useful at that point. You would just kind of have the whole flock then together. Um, but but at what point do you reintroduce those sick birds back to your, those now healthy birds back to your previously healthy flock? And at some point, they're all going to get exposed to the same things anyhow. So that, that becomes a slightly more difficult scenario. But if some of those birds were dying um, in the sick pen, um, then you probably avoided having all of your flock uh, or, or other um, birds in your flock. You probably protected them from um, some of maybe the worst elements of that disease. So the next thing I kind of wanted to chat a little about is, is you know, when we think about what a sniffle is and, and these clinical signs, um, which I'll mention just a few of them, um, I want to mention, so there's this fancy word in, in, in medicine called pathognomonic. And, and pathognomonic means is there something that the animal or the person is doing that is a slam dunk for what the disease is? So if they're sneezing, let's say, for example, just hypothetically, okay, we know they're sneezing, so it's got to be mycoplasma. Unfortunately, in poultry, there are no pathognomonic clinical signs. So you're never going to see a bird for example, um, unable to walk, and you're going to say, oh, that's Merrick's disease. Based upon the history, you might say, eh, it might be Merrick's disease. It's a younger bird. It didn't, wasn't vaccinated. There's a history of Merrick's in that environment over there. So it's probably Merrick's disease, but you can never definitively say, based on any clinical signs in poultry, that it is mycoplasma or avian influenza or Merrick's disease. And that's where those diagnostic labs come in. Um, but you can use some of those clinical signs to kind of point you in the right direction. And the best you can do is if you do see those respiratory signs, you know that it's not certain diseases. You know that it's not E. coli or salmonella um, or things like that, for example, and that's, or coccidia. So you can use some of that information to kind of hone down um, and refine what disease you're probably dealing with, or what diseases you're probably dealing with. And that can be useful for veterinarians um, that you might be working with, excuse me, or diagnostic labs that you might also um, be working with. So when we think about these clinical signs, the, the, I want to kind of just go over a few of them. Sometimes you'll have birds that are, that are sneezing and coughing, and, and you can just describe those as sneezing and coughing. The other thing you want to look for is sometimes the birds will extend their neck when they're breathing in. 
and um, they'll have literally difficulty breathing, and that's because there's, there's an accumulation of material in their trachea, and they're trying to, to move their neck in a way to kind of create some space in their windpipe so they can actually breathe. So you can look for that, and that's a good thing to describe to a vet over the phone, that they're having dyspnea, which is a fancy word for difficulty breathing, um, and that could also be gasping. And in, in a disease we'll talk about in a little called infectious laryngeotracheitis, you'll definitely see that kind of gasping for breath and dyspnea. And then the other thing, remember when you, when you walk in, when you first see your birds, before they even notice you sometimes, it's really nice just to stand there and just listen. And you shouldn't hear anything. It should be quiet aside from uh, normal kind of um, bird sounds they're making. But you shouldn't hear sneezing. You shouldn't hear coughing. And you shouldn't hear what we call tracheal rails, which is just kind of this uh, low um, sound of kind of fluid moving up and down their trachea, almost like when you've got, um, when you're sick and you've got almost like phlegm in your throat. Um, so it's good to kind of listen for that. And especially now when hopefully everyone's flocks are nice and healthy, go listen to your flock now. So then when something abnormal happens, you, you kind of have an understanding of, yeah, you know what, I'm hearing something now that I hadn't heard before. Maybe I should take a closer look at some of these birds um, and see if I'm seeing any kind of discharge coming out of their eyes or if I'm seeing conjunctivitis, like kind of that inflammation of, their, of the whites of their eyes. Um, so pay attention for those things. And, you know, having that kind of curious and fastidious nature is a really good thing um, in trying to identify as quickly as possible why, why your birds are sick. Um, so those are good things to kind of keep an eye out for. Look for, you know, are they eating less? Um, are we getting uh, fewer eggs? Um, even though we're dealing with a respiratory disease, uh, what happens a lot is these birds get sick, and, and just like you and I, when we get sick, we don't eat as much, we don't drink as much, we're not as excited um, um, about you know moving around and things like that, um, so we don't produce as many eggs. Um, so pay attention to all those things, and this kind of goes to one of my kind of areas of, of interest in, in um, small commercial production, where I'm really encouraging and trying to work with producers to capture data. Um, find out how much feed they're eating, what their feed conversion ratio is. Keep a mortality card so you know when birds are dying, so you know, okay, I'm losing less than 2% of my flock at this point. So when you call me and you say, well, I lost two birds, then I'm saying, okay, two birds out of 100, two birds out of 50, two birds out of 1,000, you know, what are we actually dealing with here? Keep all that data. And um, if you type in UC Davis uh, pasture poultry, uh, and you click on the innovation section of our pasture poultry farm, there's actually a how-to sheet in um, setting up a Google form so you can capture this data. And uh, the nice part about that, when you have that data, you can really you know, keep track of all types of things, including egg production. So when your egg production goes down, um, you'll know that, and you'll be able to kind of connect the dots in a way that you previously were not able to. Because the question I'll ask people is I'll say, okay, Sure, your bird's sniffling, but do you have a drop in egg production? And invariably, I'll get that answer like, oh, not sure. And then we'll try to figure that out. But some people, you know, especially some of these small commercial flocks, won't know exactly how many birds they have. So we can't really tell if they're having a drop in egg production or if they just haven't kept track of how many birds they've had recently because um, sometimes predators will um, – 
um, will take care of some of the birds. There will be some mortality related to that. So I really encourage people, backyarders, especially if you have children, it's such a great way to start teaching them some basic math and for them to really kind of, I think, get into the productivity aspect of, of production where they're really trying to be efficient and trying to produce food um, for their family in the most efficient way, using the least amount of feed and not wasting feed and making sure the birds are healthy. That, that, that type of, um, of data capture, I think, is, is something that we're, we're sorely lacking and really helps people like me when you call me on the phone and I start asking a couple more questions. Um, it really helps me try to figure out, okay, what are we actually, actually dealing with here? Are we dealing just with, like you said, a sniffle? Or are we starting to see, like, a drop in egg production, which could be a clinical sign for, for other more severe um, avian diseases? The other thing I wanted to mention about these respiratory diseases is that biology is not, is not math. It's not zeros and ones. So when people tell me, well, we have sick birds um, and they're really sick, um, it, it, it not, I, I can't necessarily rule out most diseases at that point because – if we're looking at a bacteria like Mycoplasma or Ornithobacterium, which is uh, the, the acronym is ORT, if we're looking at those, there are different strains of those bacteria. So some strains are more severe than others, which means they cause more disease than others when they're exposed to our birds. So what I'm trying to say is that not all Mycoplasma, not all ORT are created equal. Further complicating that, that fact is that our birds have different genetics. So you know, when you look at the two to 300 breeds of chickens that are, that are out there, you know, when we look at the commercial poultry industry, we're maybe dealing with five to 10 breeds at the most. Um, so it's pretty easy to understand, and the, and the, and the, and the literature is, is pretty, um, is relatively straightforward with respect to how those birds react to certain diseases. All bets are off when we're dealing with, you know, a lot of these other breeds that, that we just don't have that much literature on. So it, that is another kind of confounder in trying to figure out, um, you know, what disease we're dealing with. Because it, it might sound more severe. What you're describing to me is more severe than what I'm used to from, from, from kind of the commercial poultry experience. So those are kind of things to kind of, to kind of be aware of. And the other thing is you might have a co-infection. So if we're dealing with E. coli, for example, well, E. coli doesn't usually do too much by itself if we have a nice, healthy bird. But if we have now E. coli and very virulent infectious bursal disease, now the E. coli becomes a big issue. So same thing with all these respiratory viruses and bacteria. When, they're, when you have these co-infections together, um, if the bird's just dealing with it by itself, you might get that sneeze. Um, but now if you're dealing with, with two infections at the same time, it, that can be a little more taxing on the immune system. So... Um, before I go off and, and talk about any of these uh, respiratory diseases, any comments or, or deep thoughts, uh, Andy? I've, no, um, I've, I guess I've got one question I'm, I'm saving for after our next break, which I guess I can go ahead and take. But I was going to also, which I don't do all the time, is maybe open up the phone lines because there may be something that I just aren't thinking about or there's a great one that we, we would miss. If, and so I may do that just to see if anybody um, has any questions. Sometimes they get radio shy or voice shy and may not call in. But um, I was going to give our number out and then uh, go to commercial break and just see if we have anybody that maybe they're experiencing this right now or have some more detailed questions or, or a question that just I haven't thought of. My question is like um, kind of that in between. I'm so glad that you talk about the difference between commercial and backyard and the challenges that a lot of us have where, God, you know, is this going to be worth a vet visit? How much? And, and then, you know, what, what 
So I guess my question is, uh, when we when we come back, then I'll open the phone line and see if anybody wants to chime in as well. Is that uh, we we see that bird sneezing? Maybe we hear a little bit of, of gurgle, or we see some drainage, and we immediately isolate them. None of the other birds are showing anything, and we're we're watching that bird uh, at that point. Um, uh, I, know, I know we talked about if we have the dead bird in that small-scale operation, there's no reason not to do necropsy, especially I know in a lot of states it's, there's no charge for that. But um, when, if we uh, maybe, and this is a loaded question, and we'll, we'll get to it when we come back after the break, when, sh what symptoms, how, far, how long do I do that before I choose to maybe uh, medicate uh, or myself, or what should I see or what turning point would make me help Say okay, I gotta just. I'm just gonna have to fork out the cash and go to the vet that that does. We'll, we'll see chickens on, on occasion and do that. So so that was something I wanted to touch on. But I'll open the phone lines as well when we come back uh, from break if we have any. So I'm gonna give out the number if you have a question uh, regarding this topic. Again, we're talking about when a sneeze is just a sneeze and when it's not. Uh, and if and if that's and uh, if you have a question, the number call a number is three four seven. Six three seven thirty two thirty seven. It's three four seven six three seven thirty two thirty seven. When you call in, uh, you'll probably be instructed by an uh, uh, automated host to press one if you'd like to talk. And if uh, we have several callers that are listening, calling in and listening, if you have a question, uh, if you just press one, it'll let me know that you want to talk to the host as well. So you don't have to call back in uh, since we have several listening on the on the phone now. Um, then you can just press one and it'll let me know you want to talk to the host. But we're going to go to a commercial break. And when we come back, uh, we'll, we'll open the phone lines. If anybody has any questions, they're brave enough to ask online. We'll talk about maybe my question. And that's kind of a loaded one. And then uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up also with anything else that uh, Dr. Pateski may uh, have on his outline that he wanted to share with you guys today. So stay with us. We will be back with more. What is a sneeze? Just a sneeze. And when it's not. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Strombergs family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Strombergs should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Come back, 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 come back,
from our family to yours. Feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of The Chicken Whisperer. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFradio.com. That's GQFradio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. All righty, thanks for staying with us today. Thanks for joining us. And uh, again, this is Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Kalmbach Feeds. And our special guest today is poultry veterinarian Dr. Maurice Pateski. We're talking about when a sneeze is just a sneeze and when it's not. Tons of great information so far. And I really like the fact that he does kind of down to earth, separate it between, you know, there's probably different actions we need to take, whether this is a commercial production where we have 30,000 um, chickens in, in a barn and I can take five, five or six and, and send them off to the lab and, and sacrifice them to, to, to the rest of the flock to figure out what this is and how I need to and, and address a plan and how I need to um, prevent this from spreading to the other birds. Um, and then you have somebody who has eight, uh, nine, or ten in their backyard. They're all named. They're really a part of the family. They're a family pet and um, are, are, are kept in, in that aspect. And uh, the, the stakes are a little bit different. Um, you're probably, you know, it would be tough, and, and we obviously um, know that, to, to take, oh, I need to sacrifice this bird. Maybe I need to treat it a little bit. Maybe I can take it and get a swab and, and see what's wrong with it without having. But, again, you have that um, deceased bird, then especially if you already have a relationship or you have that poultry diagnostic lab in your state uh, that maybe doesn't charge or has a very nominal fee for uh, doing a necropsy to find out what it is. Now maybe you can get a treatment plan for your other birds if that's even uh, necessary based on, on what it was that uh, took out that bird. So uh, we're, we're enjoying all that, and I'm going to bring uh, Dr. Petesky back uh, live. And we'll address my question. Uh, everybody's kind of shy right now as far as the coming on, and we get that a lot. We've gotten it for the last you know, seven, eight years we've been doing the show. But... Um, the um, I guess the the main question is um, oh actually we've got one that might be interested that just called in so we may bring them on here in just a second um, is it okay I, I I walk into the, to the run uh, I'm doing a task I hear a sneeze I hear another sneeze and I identify the bird I'm like okay I'm I'm gonna just just do what I think I should do I'm gonna go ahead and separate the bird and watch it 
see if it, you know, continue to eating, drinking, see if it gets worse, see if I have any, any, any other of those symptoms. Um, and when, or again, loaded question, but to help our listeners, at what point, um, or maybe just it's just a, a sneeze, and then maybe the next couple of days it turns into a sneeze with some drainage, and then I hear gurgling, um, and then I see that it's not really getting up and walking over to get food or water. If there's a... There's a way you can help say, okay, well, maybe at this point you need to, if you feel comfortable, if you've done it in the past, if you can still get it, um, self-medicate with, with an antibiotic, or since you still really may not know what it is to begin with, that still may not be recommended. And then, so that's kind of the question, when when do we reach for that antibiotic if we are self-medicating? And then when, if we just decide, okay, I'm going to spend $100 to go and see a vet, nip this in the bud. It's one of our favorite chickens, um, and I'm willing to do that now because it's starting to get a little worse. Or maybe I started antibiotic, and now it's not getting any better. I'll I'll do that. I I know it's a loaded question, Doc, but if you could kind of help us with that because I know a lot of people struggle with that out there in their backyard blocks. No, that's a good, it's a very good practical question, Andy. So I'm, I'm the one, so I'm pretty flexible on kind of that commercial versus backyard kind of dynamic. And, and I think people like myself sometimes get in trouble when we, we try to directly apply the things that we know from a commercial flock to a backyard flock, because it is a, a square peg in a round hole sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's a square peg, it's, it's, a, it's a round peg in a round hole, but, but not always. And that, that, that antibiotic issue is where I... Um, become a little more um, adamant about you can't use antibiotics unless you know what you're dealing with. And there's two reasons for that. One is if you really want to be cost-effective, using antibiotics to treat viral diseases is not going to get you anywhere. Um, So now you're wasting your time, your money um, on antibiotics to treat uh, a virus, aside from, you know, any of the other outstanding issues about, about, you know, potentially using antibiotics inappropriately with respect to um, antibiotic uh, resistance and things like that. So you're not doing anyone any favors by doing that. The thing I'd really, especially as we move into this brave new world with the veterinary feed directive, which I, I think has the right intentions, it'll be interesting to see how um, it, it's you know poultry enthusiasts are able to um, navigate um, in, in parallel with that with that directive. But the thing that that I really encourage backyarders to do is to have a relationship with a veterinarian because veterinarians don't go into veterinary medicine to make money. Um, They need to make money. They have, you know, families and mortgages and things like that. So we want to pay them for their time, obviously. But if you have a good relationship with your veterinarian, you not – veterinarians can, can work with the system in order to avoid, in some cases, you having to pay that hundred dollars every single time you come in the reality is is if you have a good relationship with your veterinarian they come out to your flock and that's really one thing i'm really trying to work with veterinarians on is not just bringing your birds to the veterinarian because now the veterinarian can't see um, what biosecurity practices you may or may not have um, what other husbandry things might be going on as far as uh, access to um, wildlife and things like that um, so I, I, they're, they're seeing such just the tip of the iceberg when you bring the bird to them. You really want to work with veterinarians. Uh, large animal veterinarians still do this, obviously, because it's easier for us to go to see the horse or the, 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 the dairy cows than, than the other way around. We don't bring our dairy cows typically to the hospital. Uh, it does happen, but that's kind of a rare type situation. 
So what I would really suggest is, is it's so important for us to have that good relationship with the vet because once we have that good relationship with the vet, first of all, starting January 1st, 2017, we need to have that in order to get access to, to antibiotics, most antibiotics, not Tylosin, for example, but most other antibiotics, we're going to need that. So it, it, it creates a an incentive for us to have a relationship with them. And once you have a relationship with your vet, once you are a client of them, of him or her, um, there is there are flexibilities that certain vets have where the second or third time that you have the same kind of outbreak and you're describing the same clinical signs, they will prescribe you antibiotics, and they legally can prescribe you antibiotics because they saw you within the year. Um, so I think some of us, we think about those vet bills and, and we get a little um, – you know, hysterical or a little frustrated by that. Most of that is just the reality of the way the laws are set up, which are good. We we can't prescribe. I can't prescribe antibiotics over the phone, so I get that that, that phone call quite often. My bird's doing this. Tell me what to do, and I can't do that. Um, even if it was legal, I couldn't do it because, like I said, there's nothing that's pathognomonic. There's nothing that'll kind of slam dunk tell me that. Oh, yep, we're dealing with ORT. We're dealing with mycoplasma. So let's use Tylosin. But to answer your question, I would say. Once you do isolate what the organism is, absolutely, then um, that's when it is completely appropriate to use antibiotics. And, and mycoplasma is a perfect example. Um, you can treat mycoplasma with tylosin. Um, you can treat coryza with sulfa drugs. Um, the only thing I want people to be cautious about is the issue of food residues, for example. So sulfa drugs can't be used if you are collecting and consuming um, eggs from your hens. So I don't want it to be where it's like the Wild West and people are just going online. And I'm sure after the veterinary feed directive, you're going to start seeing all this stuff about, oh, here's this company I found. You know, they're based in India or China or whatever it be. You can get your drugs still this way. Sure you can, um, but, you know, the whole point is we want people to use these things uh, responsibly for all kinds of reasons, for your own protection, but also um, because of uh, a lot of these issues that we are seeing with antibiotic resistance. So, I am I am um I think you will do more harm if you use antibiotics um without understanding what the etiological agent is than if you what the agent is than if you um work with your veterinarian to figure that out. Now, there are situations where you have one bird and the veterinarian comes out there and is like, okay, we're going to take a swab, we submit that to the lab, we find out it's mycoplasma, we treat that bird with tylosin. Now, your other birds are showing the same exact clinical signs. In that situation, if I'm a vet, I would be very comfortable dispensing Tylosin for the remainder of the flock. Some vets, because of the way we're trained, would say, nope, we've got to swab the, 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 the rest of those birds to, to isolate the same organism. I'm in, in that situation, it would be more reasonable, in part because of the way we're trained, kind of in, a, in, in more of a herd health type approach, where most likely that's the same exact agent. We're never going to take swabs from 10,000 birds in a house, obviously. So that's a perfect situation about where we, we, we diagnose what's wrong in one bird and then we can kind of apply that with a reasonable amount of certainty to the remainder of the flock. Small animal vets are still working on that. That's not really the way that, that small animal vets are trained. Um, but as we do more continuing education and hopefully some vets who listen to the show will we'll make that kind of allowance as they start working with their clients. Does that kind of answer your question in a really yeah. long-winded way? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no problem. Exactly. I think it's a great answer. Um, let me go to the phone lines here. We've got someone that's called in and uh, does have a question for you, uh, directly related to this topic, uh, we hope. And a uh, caller calling in from area code 
1-800-270-2270. If you'll state your name and tell us what state you're calling from. Hi, Andy. This is Suzanne Schultz from Kentucky. It's nice to chat hey. with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for calling in. What questions uh, do you have for Dr. Koteski? I have a question about a, a couple of turkeys. I bought them as poults. I thought I had the Russian Orlops. I thought I had Boris and Natasha, but alas, I have Boris and Ivan. <laughs> One of them seems to do this little short snicking sound is the best way I can describe it. There's no no eye bubbles, no foul smell, no other no neurological signs, anything like that, except that occasionally it does a poop. Forgive my crudeness, but the best way I could describe it would be a shart. Hmm. Do, you, uh, do you understand what I'm trying to say? It's a Not very exactly. loose, okay, a very loose, runny, uh, mostly yeah. liquid-looking poop, but it uh, doesn't okay. seem to. It's they're both way about the same. They both seem to act about the same. And then the the the, the what was the first clinical sign? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you there. For I, I said there are just a little short, not really a sneeze, but just a little. It sounds like somebody would go sneeze. Yep. So, and that's actually a perfect uh, segue into into. So, you, what you're describing is, is in in the kind of spectrum of diseases is, is something that's not hugely doesn't cause a lot of mortality or morbidity. It's not causing a lot of sickness or any death, obviously. And and one disease it could potentially be is that ORT. It's called Ornithobacterium rhinotracheae, and that's just a bacteria. Um, but it's it causes much more kind of mild um sneezing and coughing then then and and that and that could be one of the things that you know obviously you can't diagnose these things without actually diagnosing them and and taking swabs and things like that but that's a perfect example of 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 some type of respiratory thing that's going on on the front end um that is probably not hugely significant um but there definitely is something there that that's occurring um on the other end, so that would be a perfect example in my mind of something that you probably wouldn't treat because um, it doesn't seem to be causing any severe disease um, right. or or anything that that you know, other than what you've observed. But you're observing it, which is which is important. And if things get worse, then we can certainly uh, chat a little more about other options at that point. The other end, what you're describing, um, kind of the diarrhea type um, uh, signs, um, it could be coccidia. Um, so that's very common, um, especially this time of year as things get wetter. Um, so one thing you might want to consider is, um, I don't know if you're using any type of coccidia stat, um, but you might want to look at a medication called amprolium. Um, right. You go to your feed store and you can try using that. Now, coccidia is, is, is ubiquitous. It's all over the environment, and the coccidia um, – Static medications don't always work against all the different strains of coccidia. Um, how old is the bird, uh, the turkeys? They're, let's see, I got them in the first week of April okay. as, as like day or two old. So usually coccidia happens a little when they're a little younger in that kind of four to eight mm-hmm. week range. But you can get coccidia right. when they're a little older. Um, well, I know per- that we do have, we've had a major problem with coccidia. Apparently there's a boatload of it in the soil here, and yeah. I have had issues with it from time to time in the rest of in the chickens and the ducks. So it's possible. I would try, have you tried using any uh, medications to treat coccidia in your in your flock? Not recently because I hadn't had everybody at, at this time seems to be doing okay. 
at, at one time it was just running rampant, and the veterinarian that is a, a poultry vet here, the only one in the area, had his recommendation was that I just routinely feed medicated chick feed to everybody. I really wasn't comfortable with that, so I used Corid, and then I used a round of Solmet, and it seemed to have cleared up, and everybody has done fine since then until I got this particular turkey. Mm-hmm. I would try one more round of um, – I wouldn't use the medicated feed per se because typically the medicated feed is more of a starter feed. Um, mm-hmm. So the nutrition is a little different on, on a starter feed than on right. kind of a grower diet. Um, but certainly appropriate in this situation, um, and, and I'm, I'm kind of going against some of the stuff I've said before, and I'll explain myself. In this situation, certainly appropriate to treat – um, as if it were a coxie infection based upon your past experience and past success with it. Um, and okay. also, coccidia is so ubiquitous. It, it, it is very common, and um, it's kind of one of those things sometimes when in doubt, um, you, you, treat, you start with the things that you know really well um, that are common, and then if um, you know, we're dealing with something different like clostridia or um, other types of ascarids or cestodes and things like that, um, then we can um, we can we can adapt appropriately from there. But I, I would start with, tr- with with treating it like coxie, and then the big thing with coxie is really the environment. Uh, if you don't want it to come back again, so it's always going to be there, but you want it there in low numbers, not high numbers. So you want to keep your environment, especially near the drinkers, uh, has a tendency to get really wet around there, and that can cause you know really a proliferation of coxie in the environment. And now they're getting huge loads of coxie when they're um, when they're eating and drinking um, from the I either soil use around the there. Sus- I use, either use suspended drinkers or I always put the drinkers up on some kind of block or elevate it somehow so they're not on the ground. But should I also go ahead and worm this turkey when I worm the whole rest of the bunch? I would, yes. I, I would I would treat okay. them for coxie though, not not for. I, I don't know. What, I don't know exactly what you mean by by worming them. You're talking about treating them with a coccidia sat or. No, I usually use like I was this, I was told to do this by the vet like twice a year to take uh I their recommendation was Epronex and put a a quarter cc on bantams and a half cc on large fowl like under the wing and then no, the base of the neck. So I would not use that actually. So if that is anything like um like frontline or advantage or any of those type of it's, Yeah, it's Ivomec. Yeah, it's don't a, do not use that. So that works. But if you're ever going to eat those, first of all, it's illegal. Um, but second of all, if you're ever going to eat those birds, um, um, you never want to use an ivermectin. It, it works very well, though. Um, but but we just don't know. Ivermectin hasn't been tested in mm-hmm. um, in poultry in the same way that it's been tested in other um, yeah. food animals. So we do not use ivermectin for the most part in poultry. Yeah, so well, it's we very do. effective. These are, these are all pets. These are not eating birds. <laughs> okay. So, okay. so yeah, it's it's one of those things where I, I would focus on amprolium. Um, okay. That that's really where you'd want to um, uh, to focus, especially for dealing with coxie. I think you're kind of going a little overboard by even in pets, which you're still not supposed to separate them out as pets or not pets. But understand your logic there. Um, right. I, I would really focus on the on the on the coxie control and using amprolium would be probably the uh, would, would probably be the safest and. Um, the thing that we know the most about. So should so, I just treat the whole gang at the same time or separate absolutely. this turkey out? So typically you put in the drinking water for like three to five right. days. 
Um, right. But I would treat I would treat the whole flock and then really focus on the prevention. That that's going to be your best friend because the reality is is that even amprolium um, does not work against all um, the different strains. strains of coccidia. Right. So okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Of course. Thanks for calling. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks, long-time listener, and uh, thanks for calling in today. Yep, we do definitely appreciate that. Um, always good to have the, the callers call in, so uh, great advice. We appreciate it. Um, and anything else uh, before we uh, say goodbye? Anything else uh, you'd like to wrap up with, Dr. Pateski? Uh, um, no, not too much. You know, the only two biggies that you really want to be aware of are avian influenza and, New- and Newcastle disease. Um, those are the diseases that you typically will see a significant amount of mortality. And when you do see that, um, that's when you, you, you really want to work with your, your diagnostic labs, your veterinarians and things like that. Because um, in those situations, now you're dealing with uh, diseases that, thank God, are considered exotic to the United States, and we want to keep them exotic. We, won't, we don't want them to become endemic. And one of the ways they can become endemic is if we kind of try to sweep things under the floor. So if that does happen, we're, we're dealing with that part of the year again where waterfowl are moving south, and waterfowl can be carriers of all kinds of diseases, including avian influenza. So we just need to be aware that um, those uh, risks are there, and that uh, a lot of the clinical signs that we were describing today, um, those sneezing and um, gurgling and things like that, and drops in egg production, those are much more severe in those um, those types of diseases. So if you do see those, work with your work with your state labs, your diagnostic labs, your veterinarian. Um, you know, they they truly are in that situation, especially there to help. That's that's one of the things they're really well trained for. Awesome. I'm trying to find, um, I just saw it. It came up on my Facebook page, my feed, but now I can't see it. But, and I think it was Watt Poultry. Uh, literally in the, in the last, I think it was 30 minutes, they had posted about uh, Europe uh, today now is on high alert because um, um, avian influenza, the high path, has been identified in some wild birds over there uh, in the area. So they're they're kind of putting all of their commercial producers on high alert now that they found it and have identified it uh, in some wild birds. So um, I can remember we're kind of coming into the season here. It was two years ago, uh, and it was, I believe, December 11th and December 12th uh, when they first identified it out on the West Coast uh, two years ago when we had that massive, massive outbreak. Um, here in the United States. Last year, um, I think it was just one uh, outbreak, or this past year, I think that was in February. I want to say maybe in Indiana, but so so, so far, so so good here. But uh, again, people are like, how, when, when should we start looking for this? When should we? When is the hot season? And I believe it was around December 12th uh, of two years ago when we first saw it. And then you remember it in late spring, uh, that's when we've had the, the Really, 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 the big numbers up there in the uh, turkey and, and poultry farms, and and the egg egg producers were really hit up in uh, Iowa. So, um, just just to give that, since we're talking about it, and you had mentioned it, it reminded me. And I just saw it, so probably somebody. I'm sure if you're interested, go Google that and see what was found over in uh, in Europe very uh, very recently. So. Um, Doc, thank you very much for joining us. I think it was a great topic. I think it was a well-needed topic. I think it will help tons of folks uh, who listen, and because they have this question, uh, if you have a flock, you've probably asked yourself this. So when is a sneeze just a sneeze and when it is not? So, uh, Dr. Pateski, thank you very much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you uh, next month right here on Blog Talk Radio. Great. Thanks for having me again, Andy. Have a good month.
Thank you. You too. So uh, also, Dr. Pateski, he's going to be a uh, contributor to the new uh, fact. So that's starting to uh, get geared up here. We're starting to work and put pen on paper for that. Uh, and of course, he's a contributor to Chicken Whisperer Magazine, which you can subscribe to absolutely free, the digital edition. Uh, just go to chickenwhisperermagazine.com. You can look at every single issue we've ever done the last uh, things entering our third year uh, of doing the uh, publication. You can also subscribe to the print edition. We'll mail it right out to you, right to your mailbox, and you can sit back and flip through the pages. So thank you very much. Hey, we've got a show this Thursday. Yep, this Thursday, uh, two-show two week this week, Yahoo, um, with um, uh, poultry scientist Dr. McCray. I don't have a topic yet, but that will be this Thursday, 2 p.m. right here on uh, Blog Talk Radio. We appreciate you tuning in today. We hope you'll tune back in this Thursday on Blog Talk Radio. God bless everybody. Oh.